Welcome to Straight Edge, the podcast. My name is Clive Allwright, and along with my amazing guests and co-hosts, we're going to be having some brutally honest and sometimes confronting conversations around all things of addictive behavior. Now, as it happens, I've been a hairdresser for 37 years, and during my career, I've met many people just like me that have also struggled in the many different areas of addiction. So our main focus of this podcast is to chat with as many people as possible from the hairdressing, barbering, and media industries, along with some pretty smart people that work in the fields of addiction to get a deeper understanding of why so many of us struggle with the balance of family, careers, health, and the day-to-day pressures of life. So if this sounds like an area you'd like to dive deeper into, make a cup of tea, sit back, and listen to Straight Edge, the podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Straight Edge, the podcast. I'm one of your hosts for today, Clive Allwright, and it is a pleasure to be here once again on Straight Edge, the podcast, with my one and only fabulous host that stepped in again today at the last minute. How are you? It is afternoon, isn't it? Afternoon, Amy. How are you, darling? Yeah, I'm very good. <laughs> yeah. Is it afternoon? Is it morning? I, we lose track these I days, don't, don't we? I don't know. It's all a bit weird. Now, one thing we didn't mention on the last episode, that you've been in the wars a bit lately and you have sliced, nearly amputated your thumb. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> So you can't hitch a lift anywhere soon. <laughs> have to laugh, soon. but it's true. Yeah, she's got a thumb stuck up in a yeah, it's pretty bad. surgery. But you are good. You are, I've got to give it to you, soldier on, babe. And I love it. The show must go on. So uh, I'm sending you lots of healing vibes. Absolutely. Um, now, Thank I was you. meant to do this episode today with Louise. And um, she's in regional Australia. And unfortunately, due to Australian National Broadband Network, it's gone down and it's crashed. And uh, so Amy's on a lunch break mm-hmm. right now. And so thank you for stepping in once again. Um, talking of internet, that is a great segue into our guest today. We are stepping out of our comfort zone. We usually talk about drugs and alcohol. I'm pleased to invite and announce um, Giselle Woodley, who's with us, joining us this morning, all the way from Perth. How are you, Giselle? Hello, I'm well, that, thanks. How good. about yourself? Thank you so much for, for being a guest today on our, or a specialist here on in a subject that I've done maybe 20 years of in and out research on, but, you know, I couldn't say I'm an expert, but um, <laughs> uh, we're, go- we're, delving into, <laughs> we're delving into the world of pornography today. So, um, Giselle, thank you, because um, you have done a load of research in this area. So if you'd like to just share with us you know, a little bit about yourself and then some of the amazing work that you've been, or some of the research that you, you've been doing. You are a research, research assistant at the School of Arts and Humanities in Perth. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I actually um, work across two universities, so I'm poly campus, I suppose. And I work at uh, Curtin University and I research issues around sexual violence. And then at Edith Cowan University, I'm conducting a PhD looking at uh, teens' perspectives of pornography and their perspectives of uh, relationships and sexuality education as well. So uh, addiction to pornography comes up. A fair bit. Oh, yeah. Um, and I also have a background as a sexologist. So I, I have written about pornography previously um, in my sexological background as well. What can you, can you maybe share with, with us and our audience what sexology is? Yeah, sure. So sexology is essentially the study of human sexuality. Um, you don't sort of do a sexological course and um, suddenly you're a sexologist, it's sort of a, a puzzle piece to other areas. So, for instance, a teacher can study sexology and they become proficient in sex education. 
a psychologist can study sexology and um, work towards becoming a, a clinical psychotherapist or clinical sex therapist. Um, so for myself, I've, I've ended up in research because I really love advocacy and I found that research in particular um, provides the, the, the evidence, I suppose, to um, submit to public policy and debate around these issues and their evidence base. So that, I think that's really important. In layman terms, when you're studying, so I guess you'd be studying sort of how much, uh, would, would this um, involve studying how much time people spend watching pornography or um, as, as, as a, I know we had a conversation off air where you mentioned that not addiction, but compulsion to watching pornography increased over COVID. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, so first off, it's probably best to sort of define pornography addiction because we're not actually allowed to call it a pornography addiction. So that's first and foremost essential to the discussion. So uh, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is used for, di- for clinical diagnoses, doesn't currently recognise pornography addiction. And instead, it's referred to as either compulsive pornography use or problematic u- problematic use of pornography. Um, and that's the only way that's sort of permitted to be categorised. But obviously, anecdotally, in the media, um, a young, amongst young people, pornography addiction is used quite heavily. Um, so it, it's, it's also worth noting that the DSM has also been previously incorrect as well. So currently, um, the ICD, International Classification for Diseases, um, categorises pornography addictive behaviours under compulsive sexual behaviour disorder. But... Currently, it lacks the evidence to be to be um, considered as an addiction. But I will say the DSM-5 has previously considered homosexuality to be a mental disorder, wow. and that was only removed in 1973, um, which really yeah. isn't that long ago. So mm. it, in, in my opinion, personally, there is room for updates. Of it. Maybe that evidence will update over time. Um, yeah. Interestingly, neuroscientists believe that there is grounds for pornography to be included as an addiction it's it's quite Mm. polarized but there are several neuroscientists that posit that it lights up similar areas to the brain the reward center releases dopamine and um, is synonymous with behavioral addictions currently the only behavioral addiction that's recognized in the dsm-5 speaking about Fortnite, is um gaming is currently recognized um as a behavioral addiction but pornography is not so i think we, you know, it, it comes down to semantics and, and language, but at the moment it's not a diagno- diagnosable disorder. Um, it's used um, in layman's terms, I suppose, but technically in a clinical setting we can't refer to it as that. But I'm happy to keep okay. referring to it for, as a pornography addiction throughout um, this podcast, but just with that as a um, yeah. I mean, as a proviso, I mean, it's I suppose. not really about an addiction thing, but I guess, I mean, Louise has sent me some questions as well that she wanted to sort of raise throughout the day, and they're all based around she, as like I do, have a 13-year-old daughter, and Amy, your daughter's around about nearly 12. 12. Yeah. So I guess from a parent's point of view, one of the things that, I mean, is kind of terrifying to a parent is when you realise that, I mean, our children are not children for very long now and they get exposed to things so much quicker. And as Louise said in her question, it says, you know, yeah. you know, um, the, ex- the exposure at such a young age, um, are they becoming desensitised to graphic content, um, nudity, inappropriate material? And I guess that goes across anything. I mean, even like what was currently seen on the news around the world, it's almost like, 
it's not real, you know. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I don't want to combine that with too many questions. But what what's the age of what, say, the average teenager would discover porn? Um, you know, ch- the chimes have changed in, from me finding my dad's magazines under the bed. I guess put it that way. yeah i suppose everyone had their their experience of their first interaction with pornographic um or sexual material um but the statistics differ but we know that teens on average are accessing at a minimum of around 13 that's what the um most recent national survey for sexual health with secondary students has found we do know students or young people access as young as nine there are other studies that show it's more an average of around 11 and i would say Based on our study sample of 49 interviews, I would say, um, because we're qualitative data rather than quantitative, but on average, I would say the average is 10 in our study of teenagers. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that's it, obviously it, terrifying yeah, to hear yeah, as a parent. Is, <laughs> yeah. is, is there a difference between the two? Yeah, I would say male and – I would actually say male and female. If, if anything, um, if we were to talk in binaries, I would suppose that the males are more looking for it themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, out of curiosity or um, someone's piqued their interest. But for the females, it was more non-consensual. So um, either someone has showed them con- shown them the content there and then or said, you know, search big titties or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And or often sent and, – and I would classify this as sexual content um, rather than pornography per se, but for most of the females, their first um, interaction is usually between 11 and 13 and it's unsolicited dick pics yeah. um, via sexting. Wow. That's sexual content. So, And often because they haven't had any conversations about sex because, you know, um, parents and schools keep um, – you know, we have this frame of mind, you've got to have the birds and the bees conversation once they're teenagers – but in a yeah. modern context, teens are accessing this far earlier and, and these conversations are happening too late when they're less receptive to them as well. I, I, I have to agree with that. I'll tell you um, a little story of my, my own daughter. Um, someone at school had ta- started just talking about sex. We hadn't even had this conversation with her yet. She was only just um, 10 at the time. And... Um, her being you know quite innocent didn't really know what sex was went home googled it and obviously porn comes up um so she didn't come and tell me this I always you know kind of monitor what she's been googling what she's looking at um and you know I'd seen all these like horrific you know even as an adult if you were to view that kind of content it, it was extreme and I was like what on earth has happened here, you know? And, um, you know, we had to address it. Myself and her dad, you know, we had to kind of say, first of all, how, why is this on your laptop? Um, and, you know, and then we had to... So it was all backwards, really, because then we had to have the sex talk and then we had to try and say, look, what you've seen, it, it, it's not how sex should be. Um, you know, sex is supposed to be loving between two people um, and, you know, to, that, that want to be together and share their bodies, etc. You know, so it was very confronting and came a lot earlier than I was expecting. And I do wish that I'd had the opportunity to talk to her first, even about sex and what sex was, um, because then you worry that you don't want her to be traumatized by what she saw 
or to think that what she saw is normal. Do you know what I mean? So it's a really hard situation, I think, for parents. Have you had anything like similar to that, Clive? It's interesting because when we had a preliminary conversation with Giselle last week, I was away for the weekend with my wife and youngest daughter. And as we were walking up the street, I was holding her hand and we came up to a set of traffic lights and I'm like, have you ever ever seen pornography? And uh, she looked at me, she went, what is it? And I was like, um, and I was kind of relieved at the time. And uh, and she's like, no, no, I haven't. And um, and I would, uh, but you're right. It's no, I can't really ignore it. She's she's 13, right? And we're going to have to have that conversation about what is out there and what can be, you know, which leads me into, this is a minefield, right? So social media, things like Snapchat, where Kids think that the pictures disappear and they're asked to send pictures of each other. Is Would, would I be wrong in thinking that this would be the first sort of introduce, introduction to that? Like, uh, Absolutely. Sexting? That's what our research is saying as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, sexting it can be a positive way in terms of building relationships, building a sense of trust. Um but it also has the capacity for harm in terms of particularly if a young person hasn't um, hasn't consented to receiving an image. Um, so, you know, there is there does seem to be a compulsion among young people and, and some adults to show their genitalia to others, and it would be nice to have a heads up before yeah. um, that occurs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, with a lot of young people, those, the, you know, that digital literacy is missing. So... Um, although they're very hyper aware of the effects of a digital footprint and that's probably their biggest concern with sexting is where is this image going to go, there's less skills around digital literacy and respect and care for if someone sends an image to you, don't share that with all your mates. And yeah. I think what is missing from the conversation is we in schools we do talk about, you know, it's sort of similar to what you were saying, Amy, earlier about, um, you know, I wish I'd had that conversation before and, and we do hear that from parents and we do hear of very similar situations to yourself and I don't know if if you're both aware of the well the backlash to the welcome to sex book earlier this year please please explain so yeah sure so there there was a um, book identified in big w called welcome to sex by um, dr melissa kang who's the previous dolly doctor uh, a previous dolly doctor and yumi steins and the welcome to sex book is a book for teenagers that um is exceptionally comprehensive it's a brilliant book um, but experienced a lot of backlash because it was on the shelves in Big W in the parenting section, mind you, but parents were very worried that, uh, you know, a child would come across this because, you know, children are trolling the bookstores, um, subject to harm. Um, and parents were concerned that they were going, they were being exposed to sexual content and therefore sexualized at an earlier age, that there's a loss of innocence, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the book's actually extremely comprehensive, but one of the main criticisms of it was it does talk about sexting and it talks about it in a way that, in my opinion, is more um, in line with the actuality of teen sexual behaviour. So it says, you know, if you, you know, it's illegal. And in Australia, it, it's illegal and has different um, legislation in differing states. It's very convoluted. So, for instance, it's illegal to even own a picture of yourself if you're under 18, even if you never send it to anyone else. Wow. Um, which is which is kind of absurd. Um, so the, the in the Welcome to Sex book, it says 
things like, you know, if you're going to take a photo, maybe don't include your face or any identifying features, which to me is actually safety information. Um, but part of the backlash, in addition to pages that were that went over safety information over anal sex and scissoring and, and sexual acts like this. But the main backlash was we're encouraging children to engage in sexting. We're encouraging them to engage in these illicit behaviours. I would posit, though, that with sexting, um, kids are overwhelmingly given the message, don't engage, don't send, don't send these pictures. They're going to haunt you for the rest of your life. And they still overwhelmingly engage in these behaviours. And I think, you know, we talk about safe sex in terms of condoms, um, STIs, and Sex is technically illegal for them, but we want them to be safe because we know they're doing it. It's better mm. that they're given safety information. And it, I, I would posit that it's a similar situation with sexting. We need to get with the times. Uh, it's just digital sex. It's a different way of being intimate. Um, and that sexual content needs to – we need to update our messaging, um, both as community um, and in our education system in terms of keeping up to date with this is how some young people engage in sex in a digital sense. And therefore, they need that safety information to engage in a healthy um, and respectful manner. Isn't it crazy how our parents can be reactive to stuff like that? Like, oh, you know, we're, we're exposing our children to something too young. But we're quite happy to sit and drink a load of wine in front of our kids from a very young age, you know, or whatever. Mm. Or, you know, mm. like I remember my parents telling me, you know, never, ever take drugs. Drugs, drugs is what killed Elvis you know, and don't just say no, you know, and it's like, what, that yeah. didn't work. And so you get, mm. so whatever it is of any compulsive behavior, if it seems exciting, if it seems exhilarating, like hiding a bottle of cider down the park or having a cheeky cigarette, or you know what, I'm going to take a picture of my dick and send it to, you know, the girl that I've fallen mm. in love with, because you, you, at that age, you're not really in, thinking with a level head are you really because you're just it's all excitement as well so yeah and they yeah and they don't really have a full understanding at that age and I think it is important I think as parents for us to educate ourselves Mm. it's actually our responsibility to be ahead and not think oh my child's never going to do that I could easily have said that about my daughter you know she's well behaved she's really lovely you know you wouldn't think she's not actively gone out there to rebel or to engage in certain things and but she's been exposed to it because that's the reality of the world that we're living in and so it's our job I think as parents to you know I mean after that I did a lot of you know research and how to how do we protect it how do we safeguard um, her google searches or whatever but also making sure that she was supported enough to come to me and for us to talk about stuff. I said to her, you know, if this happens again at school and someone talks about something that you're interested in or you're, you're not quite sure what it is, come and ask mum. Don't just Google it. There's a lot of information out there that's not helpful and not real um, and I, I want you to be able to come to me, you know. Um, and, you know, so far so good, but, you know, she's not hit the teens yet, so... We will see. Mm. <laughs> that might all change. So, Who knows? so what would... Yeah, that's a really great point. Sorry, carry on. Oh, that, I was just going to say, no, no problem. I was going to say that's a really great point about um, that you left the door open for her to approach you, and that's really, really paramount because I think a lot of parents, and, and this comes up in our research, use internet filtering software 
um, different mediation techniques to um, prevent their teens' access to pornography. But obviously, it's not a foolproof system. You can't use internet filtering software in every single context. And they have access yeah. to handheld devices, their friends' houses, etc. Um, and sometimes, um, although those, those, you know, net nanny and those um, mediation techniques can be useful up until a point, with teenagers it becomes a bit of a hindrance because they need that independence and autonomy. Yeah. And like Clive was saying, you know, try and tell a teen not to do something. It's like, yeah. you know, they're, just gonna, they're in that rebellious phase. So, mm. um, yeah, I suppose it, it's really important to keep that door open and sometimes when children still access that material when they do have all those mediation techniques then it makes it less them feel less able to bring it up with a parent because they're too yeah. terrified that they're going to get in trouble um yeah. so it can be a hindrance from that point of view i've had um teens who've had really awful situations but they've been too terrified to tell their parents of these situations that are occurring online because they're scared that they're going to take their device away they're going to take their social media away um and so having that open conversation and having an open door is so important okay. I've heard of stories of like you know sending nude pictures to other people as in privacy, and they've been screenshot and used against them, um, which is just horrific yeah. and terrifying. Mm, sextortion. What, sextortion. Yeah. That's, um, the, that's a I'll, great word. So sextortion um, just falls under the umbrella of image-based sex abuse. Um, so um, you know, often being blackmailed for images. If you send, you know, you need to send more images, otherwise, I'm going to show this to everyone. And it falls mm -hmm. under the umbrella of image-based sex, sexual abuse. Um, Gosh. So is there, any, is there any link from kind of your research then as to um, when it comes to, you know, excessive use, let's call it, rather than addiction, excessive mm -hmm. use of, of pornography? Um, you know, I mean, I've only just, you know, searched information online, which may or may not be right. Um, but from my understanding um, that overuse can affect um, sexual connection with people, um, performance, uh, impotency, uh, different various issues if it's overused. Um, mm -hmm. do, do you have any research on that? Yes, I do. Uh, what, what I suppose my research speaks to most of all is teens' perspectives of these addictions. So, Addiction comes up a lot because we ask teens, um, you know, what are your perceptions of pornography? Um, what, do you, what do you think about it? And then we do go into, you know, what are negative aspects and even what are, what are, ben what are possible benefits to accessing pornography? And porno uh, addiction almost comes up um, almost every time as a negative effect. You know, I can be addicted to this um, or I have been addicted to this. I can't stop watching. Um, and we interviewed teens 12 to 17. Um, interestingly, we did have to seek further ethics to expand our age group to 11 to 17 because, um, well, I suppose I have a case study to offer where a young teen aged 11 uh, put his hand up for this study because of his pornography addiction. Wow. And wow. he believed that he, he first accessed pornography at eight years old and felt he was addicted. He couldn't stop watching it. Um, and he, he, he could rattle off almost every pornography genre as well. He had definitely more, uh, conceptualization of pornography, um, than I did, I would say in terms of the genres out there. Like I, re I researched this, you know, at home as well, yeah. but he, um, he was very, very well acquainted. And what's really interesting when we talk about addiction is 
these addictions, these potential problematic pornography use are occurring at such a young age where there's no conceptualization of sex beforehand. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that has a really interesting effect psychologically on their concept of sex. So, for instance, this particular um, little boy, and if I, if I refer to any of the teenagers, I'll ident- de-identify their information, but let's call him uh, David. So David um, started watching at eight, Googled what pornography was, and then um, found that he was watching it every every possible minute of every day. Um, knew inherently to sort of hide his behaviour, but kept getting caught at school, kept getting caught at home. Um, had to eventually see a psychologist. Um, he often used, um, so probably need a, a trigger warning um, in terms of speaking about uh, sexual assault, but uh, his biggest fear, because we ask, in our research, we also ask about pornography and the scope of harms to see where it sort of rates in, you know, as opposed to cyberbullying or racism or drugs and alcohol. And we, we received differing responses. For him, his biggest fear was someone doing ass porn to him in an alleyway. And to me, that was indicative of, you know, he's watched so much. Um, and he himself said his favourite genre was hardcore porn. Um, I've actually saved some of his um, quotes, which I'm happy to – they're de-identified. I'm sure. happy to share them. Sure. Um, but that was his biggest fear is someone doing that. And um, so say, for instance, this is a quote of his. So, you know, he's able to enjoy the hardcore category most often rattle off all those um, genres. I've watched hardcore porn. There were different categories you could go on to, like black men, white men, big titties, small titties, schoolgirls, teenage girls, teenage boys, amateur, mature, hardcore, ones like that. But usually the ones I enjoyed most was hardcore. I found it was very hard to stop. I think it's a lot like drugs, looking at it and enjoying it and then suddenly having to stop. I found that very hard. Wow. Um, so this is an 11-year-old boy. Gosh, wow. so, gosh, it's unbelievable. Which, do you do you think, Giselle? Sorry, yeah. Clive. Do you think that um, because their brains are still developing so young, um, do, do is it the, kind of getting addicted, so to speak, to pornography? Is it um, is it more impactful on on younger people's brains? than it is adults like can you become more addicted younger is what I'm trying to say is there something scientific that happens in the brain with the dopamine or and all that kind of stuff like is it is there any I research think, around that I haven't seen any research in terms of seeing if teens are more susceptible to addiction per se because it's also problematic because we can't use the term addiction yeah um so yeah. those studies are limited in in testing um but I have seen research that um indicates and and I can see it in my own research that indicates that teens are more impressionable in terms of pornography and that makes a lot of sense and that comes through in our research in terms of very much monkey see monkey do Um, and you know even the teens that are already engaging in sexual activity even if they're not watching pornography themselves they're having sex or interacting with their peers who have watched pornography so its messages inherently permeate through their um, their own sexuality and their own sexual behaviours and their own mm. sexual interactions. So, for instance, yeah. David, who I illustrated, um, I'm just going to share a couple more quotes of his because it's just such an interesting and mm. terrifying case study. Um, yeah. it, and, and it shows because his, his conceptualisation of sex is hindered and, and so impacted by his engagement with hardcore pornography at such, a young, at such a young age. So he says, I think it's mainly addictive for boys, mainly because usually it's the boys who do more of the raping in porn. And I think they would like the idea. I think they think it would be funner doing that. 
So it's important to consider that David might not technically be aware of the true meaning of raping. Um, yeah. And while this wasn't technically technically explored, I suppose he did talk about sexual assault in other scenarios, um, such as, you know, the ass porn in the alleyway. Um, and then he says, I searched up the word normal sex and I saw the normal sex and it was two couples in jeans and T-shirt and they proceeded to have sex under the covers and they didn't show much detail. Um, and it looked really boring and he really liked the excitement to the hardcore to hardcore pornography and um, and those aggressive sexual behaviours. So there's no research to show that teens are um, more can be more susceptible to addiction, but there's definitely more impressionable. And as you can see from that case study, it becomes really convoluted in terms of their conceptualization of, of sex and sexual activity. Yeah, that, that that was just my next question, I guess, was like, you know, because um, there's access to hardcore, um, you know, you can watch any type of sex you want, really, can't you, if you wanted stuff, to? Stuff you don't um, even know about. Exactly. Um, surely, uh, you know, is it, has the research also shown that that then changes, um, you know, those sexual interactions with with those kids because as an example let's just say uh when I was at school um nobody spoke about anal you know just wasn't a thing if it was ever kind of passed around it was gross um you know what I mean whereas now apparently lots of girls are engaging in that thinking that that's also just very very normal um so do you think it's had a an effect on their psyche and their kind of um, exploration and what they're prepared to do or what they think is expected of them? So the research is the re- existing literature on this is actually quite mixed um, and it's quite polarizing. So there's some research that posit that um, pornography has an impact, particularly on the rising rates of sexual violence, which include acts such as um, well, 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 sexual violence in in its true sense, but also in inherently aggressive sexual acts such as choking, anal sex. Um, hair pulling, etc. Um, but um, in terms of evidence base, we can't actually say that pornography has a causal relationship to the increase in sexual violence and technically these activities, but we can say it has a correlational effect. Um, okay. But there is a lot of research that does show that there has been a rise in those sexual activities. The, the age for anal sex engagement Currently, the average in the National um, Survey of Sexual Health among secondary students is the average age for anal sex is 15. Um, and we, we do know in several research studies that choking um, and these various behaviours are definitely more prevalent in sexual activity than they ever have been. Gosh. So I guess, it, yeah, I guess it's important to also um, identify that porn's not all bad either. There are also some benefits to it it can be really easy to um see it as this really damaging entity that we can't stop either (laughs) you know um you know india um i think try using india as an example they tried to ban Pornhub and a a bunch of other pornography sites um and every time they did new new websites would pop up and then they'd ban those and um you know sort of chasing the um, so it, it's not going away. So it's more about how we are, how we deal with it. And I think mm. different countries are scrambling to work on age verification processes in the UK and Ireland, Australia. Um, and they're not quite working, you know, they're working in conjunction with websites like Pornhub, um, trying to bring in these measures like uh, biometrics and 
age, age, digital identification software um, and it's not exactly foolproof and it, it can be quite problematic. Um, so it's, it's a problem that's not going away. I think to me it's more about integrating it, making sure that there's healthy messages that accompany pornography and we can have healthy yeah. conversations about sex. And I think a lot of the teens were able to ascertain that it's fantasy, not reality. But Clive, you did mention, I, I don't think we talked about it in detail, but you didn't mention the um, desensitization process. And that has come, um, has come up in our research as well in terms of teens were able to articulate that they needed more and more mm. um, hardcore material or more and more aggressive material because it becomes normalised and that um, desensitisation process which, occurs. Which leads me into, obviously, you've mentioned Pornhub and other different sites, that porn web generic websites, but there's also the OnlyFans explosion that's happened where... You know, it takes things into a different realm. You've taken the pornography. You know, if you want to be a porn star, you'd have to normally go to the San Fernando Valley in, in California or wherever it is in, in L.A. and join up, you know, the porn industry as such and be sometimes, as I've heard people talk about that, you can be exploited. And now you can look at it from a business standpoint and go, well, I control the content that I put out on OnlyFans now. As, as an example, I'm sure there's other sites like it where it's a subscription-based model. But my question is this. We, we've got a generation of kids that are born in a digital age, right? They, they can sit at home. They can order food on their phone. They can, you know, when they, if they can lie about their age and get alcohol delivered, they can, um, you know, but Bitcoin, trading, you name it. And I'm, there is definitely a movement in younger kids saying well you know what i'm just going to do only fans and i can i can you know i've watched some porn knock one out and then I, you know what next thing i know i've i've got myself an only fan site and i will make i will get a revenue stream from that and i don't even need to leave the house have you come across that mm. only fans has only come up a little bit in our study um i think with with pornography um, and coming at it from differing feminist um, perspectives, I think, is, is, is probably an important discussion, is that, you know, pornography and OnlyFans can be viewed as quite liberating for women and freedom of sexual expression. Um, and, you know, in a way, um, at least you're getting paid for this content because, you know, we speak yeah. to teens and everyone's, yeah. you know, sending dick pics and, and their sexual cells willy-nilly, so why not make a buck? Um, yeah. Obviously, that's subject to being o over 18, um, mm -hmm. But then there's also this backlash of um, of feminism um, coming from some advocates in the current space where, um, say, for instance, Chanel Contos just had an interview with Mar Marie Claire and she mentioned um, something to the effect of no matter what, it's not really feminists, feminist of women to appear in porn because it's objectifying women and essentially um, adding to the adding to like the, the, the shaming and stigmatization of women in, in sexual selves and it's not actually a very empowering act. So we have these two very differing perspectives of, um, you know, acts like OnlyFans and sex workers and performing in the sexual space. So while my research doesn't speak to that specifically, aside from teens sort of mentioning that they'll have bots that direct them to OnlyFans, um, I would uh, – my personal perspective, I suppose, is that um, – I think it is liberating. If women want to do that, then that's that's their prerogative and that that is a liberating 
sexual act if they want to explore their sexual selves. Obviously, that comes with a disclaimer that it has to be over 18. Um, but then if, if teens are engaging in, in sexting behaviours, for instance, that is them engaging with their sexual mm-hmm. selves. That is them um, expressing their identity and their sexual, you know, they're, they're grappling with their sexual identity and that's their part of their sexual exploration. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily, despite the legal implications, um, and we do ask teens about this in our study, actually. We ask, you know, despite the legal implications, is this wrong or um, mm-hmm. is this problematic? And while a lot of them wouldn't personally engage in that activity themselves, they could identify that um, that there wasn't anything inherently wrong, particularly in the safety of a romantic relationship. I'm going to go somewhere right now. I don't know if you saw last night on one of our media channels, on the TV, there's a TV show in Australia called Four Corners, which is a bit like 60 Minutes, which is an expose. And... I stumbled across it. Ironically, everything happens. You know, everything happens for a reason. I knew I was doing this interview today, and the whole Four Corners um, report last night was into Andrew Tate and uh, the whole system behind his, you know, seven point two billion Twitter followers or whatever. Now, my wife and I just happened to catch through the middle, and what we saw was absolutely terrifying from a perspective of. What happened, what's been happening is, is that people use this influence to then talk to young men, which I'm going to try and summarize this as quick, as quick and as simple as possible. But basically what it does is it gives people a guideline on how to approach basically vulnerable young girls. And you do a test with a box of chocolates. If she brings you a chocolate or a box of chocolate, it means that she's susceptible to be coerced into pretty much anything from what we understood. The next thing you know is they're basically taking control in this relationship to the point where we're level of sort of slavery and abuse and then saying, well, you know what, you and I can then make some serious money together. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to do this webcam um, sex. So when you open up a porn site, you, you, we're all familiar with, you'll see Jasmine or whatever it is, um, site which opens up into you know, webcam sex where people can pay and subscribe into, which is very similar to OnlyFans. But one of the things that horrified me, there are millions of people signed up to this, um, to learning how to coerce and basically manipulate women into doing such things. And I had some of the women on there that were, the young girls, I should say, that were forced into doing these webcam things and... um, you know, these sessions and then the guys basically kept all the money and they were considered to be, you know, these players that were buying cars and bits and pieces. And it just showed, it just, I mean, I had no idea what I was watching. And as my wife and I just looked at each other and went, what the hell is the world coming to here, right? You know, like, um, do do you have any research, any thoughts on, you know, obviously you'd mentioned at the beginning that sexual violence was on the increase. And that was one of the things that they were talking about in the four corners report last night, that this like this whole control over, you know, find a partner. And this is taking over months or years. And eventually, you know, you, you get them to become your honeypot for, 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 you know, a money Mm -hmm. stream. So have you come across stuff like this? Mm -hmm. I mean, in in our sexual violence research, we do know that one in four to five women, and it's changing to one in one in four, but it's one in five. It's one in four for people under eighteen has been women has been affected by sexual violence of of some form or other, and the statistic one in four for under eighteens 
and one in five for over 18s. So we do know that the, that's statistically um, prevalent in Australia, but it's also similar statistics in both America and the UK as well, uh, quite similar numbers. Right. So we, we are moving into a revolution of the, age, I would call it sort of the age of consent, where consent is um, being viewed as paramount. It's much more prevalent in discussions. Teens are hyper aware of, of the idea of consent, um, even to the point where um, teens talk about wanting to write a contract before they engage in any sexual activity so that they can't later um, catch a case is what they call it, so they can't later be, be um, reported for sexual harassment or, or sexual assault. Um, so they're hyper aware of it almost in a, in a damaging damaging way or not really coming from a respect and care um, yeah. Yeah. centred approach. It's more, I don't want to get in trouble. So, uh, you know, I'm too scared. So I'm going to yeah. write a contract before I have not have sex. So, wow. um, I yeah, that I suppose. Kind of, that kind of takes away like the intimacy, the connection, the, the kind of fundamental reason of, you know, for having sex is, is attraction connecting to another human being and yeah attraction and don't get me wrong I'm not um I'm not saying that you know there's no judgment from me on anyone that wants any kind type of sex with anybody else right as long as it's consensual it's up to you what you do um and it's not abusive it's not to someone um who's you know underage and all of those things um but it does seem quite sad to me to hear that, to think that you're so scared of, you know, being in trouble that you write a contract, then just I kind of naturally fall into that place of, of eventually having sex and losing your virginity and some of the innocence, I guess. Do you think that it's taken away some of the innocence of, of sex with people? Uh, I think so, and I think this comes comes sort of back around um, to pornography as an addiction as well and how that intersects with that, or pornography as pr- problematic use. Um, because I suppose teens in particular, you know, that's, a, if you know, if schools are touching on um, aspects of sex such as condoms and STIs, um, but what we're finding in their, our research is schools tend to talk around sex, especially because there's huge backlash from parents if anything's too direct. And then we're finding that teens aren't able to speak to their parents. Um, either parents feel uncomfortable or the conversations are happening too late. And, you know, once puberty hits, teens are far less receptive to those discussions mm. um, than they were at, say, sort of 10, 11, when they start actually seeing this content. So mm. I think... I think um, you know, sex, sex, as as you say, is is a desire for connection. It's um, you know, bringing closeness between two people, and I think a lot of that is lost when we talk about it in these sterile, risk aware environments. You know, consent education has been made mandatory in schools, and although although that's fabulous from a sexual health prevention um, point of view, uh, as you said, it you know, it's taking that that sort of care and beauty out of sex and I think that coupled with being informed instead by sex informed about sex through pornography and through these aggressive acts we're missing that humanistic quality we're missing those conversations um and for teens in particular those that that engagement with sex where you know we live in this sort of hyper sexualized society where sex is everywhere 
But then at the same time, it's super taboo and you can't talk about it. And that's why there's such problematic use of pornography, I think, in part, is because, you know, um, sex is this sort of stigmatised mystery. um, And that's part to do with sexual, that interlinks with sexual violence as well, because part, part of why some sexual violence occurs. And, you know, if sex wasn't such a mystery, if it was destigmatized, if we could just talk about it, I think there would be less sexual violence because it, because it's less enticing. It's less, um, you know, we're able to just comfortably talk about it. We're able to comfortably engage and negotiate sex it, um, without yeah. writing a contract. Just remo- um, Sorry to yeah. jump in. You've just reminded me of a very important point that I've forgotten about. A few years ago, I was in London. And I was talking to a very good friend of mine and she was talking about a Christmas party they had at work. And one of the, they invited some friends and one of the staff members was trying to find these two girls that were invited to the party online on social media because he wanted to get their number. And she said, why don't you just go up and talk to them? And he said, I can't do that. You're not, you just don't go up and talk to girls in VAR. That's not allowed anymore. That's not the way things happen. Right. And, she was kind of really upset. She's like, this is, this is silly. Like, you know, you've got any, cause no, you don't understand. You, you just don't go up to people. They'll report you for whatever. And do you think that if this is the way the world's going, right? You, that whole thing that, I mean, I'm 54. When you, when you met someone, there was that connection, you were attracted to them. You went out for a drink or whatever it was. And one thing maybe led to the other. That that's that innocence has sadly been lost. And like just say, for instance, when you're a teenager, you go, Well, I really want to try sex. But if I go and approach someone and ask them, they next thing I know they could sue me or well, I need to write a contract. Mm. I'm just gonna go on Tinder and I'm just gonna find someone else that's looking for sex. And then that way this is just an agreement that we're gonna do between each other and, and then there's no emotional attraction. And I find that fucking terrifying really excuse me but like you know Mm. is that the way i'd hate to think that our children Mm. and grandchildren would just go they're going to miss out on that natural human connection sorry i'm rabbiting on here but giselle what are your thoughts no i think you know like i just think if if it's if it's taboo to go up like i've had this conversation with my 22 year old stepson he's like Clive, don't you just don't go up and chat to girls, mate? You know what I mean. You just you've got to befriend them on Instagram or whatever, Snapchat, TikTok, whatever. And there's millions of platforms out there. And, do you, and what do you do? Do you send them a dick pic if you like them before you can go and actually hook up with them? I don't know. But wh- wh- where are we going with this? I think well, teens are growing up in an unprecedented age where you know their their sense of self and their sense of sexuality is being informed by the media around them. And it's not just pornography. It is also Instagram, advertising, TV. Um, and although we've had all those those um, those outlets before, it's it's in a, you know, it's, it's ubiquitous and particularly pornography in terms of either accessing it themselves or um, someone else accessing it that they end up um, fornicating with or engaging with. Um, it's there and it's informing their sexual behaviour and, and our culture. And so we do have this culture of, you know, teens being more and more online, the communities are online, the interactions are online, and there is research. Um, and, and, you know, it's not all, it's not, again, it's not all good and bad. There's there's research to show that it, it, it can manifest some beautiful connections. It can give teens access to some amazing communities um, that acknowledge and um, acknowledge their sense of self 
but then there are also there is also research to show that they you know they're becoming more um, insular, um, not able to have those in-person social skills. So it will be interesting to see um, where our culture goes in the next you know 10, 20, 50 yeah. years. And I think there is that movement towards it that we are seeing in teenagers. And I, I suppose it's like I said before, like we need to keep updated in terms of keeping teens safe when they engage in these sexting behaviours because they're going to do it anyway. And it's very different yeah. to how we grew up. Um, but I suppose that's sort of life as well. It, it, we adapt and we change. And I guess, I, um, I guess if porn rates are on the increase like they are, there's, there's, there's a lot of wanking going on out there. Or Sorry, masturbation. <laughs> 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 you know, no, just uh, I'm int- well. You did mention about COVID. I'm, I'm intrigued, right? Did your study come across? You know, if what is the average time? Like when you go, someone's excessively masturbating. Like if you're doing it every day, twice a day, three times a day. Have you got any research on that? I mean, because I, I mean, I come from a generation where, you know, if if I stopped doing it because I thought my dead nan was watching me. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> This, that's actually the, <laughs> I remember. this actually does come up in okay, our research. Go on, please, yeah. and I'll come back to you. So, so, um, so because the, the the addiction, the fact that teens perceived porn to be an addiction, and because that was one of their biggest fears in terms of problematic porn use, um, what we did in our data is we interviewed some of the teens a year later, um, offering some semi-longitudinal data. So, it looks at their perspectives a year later, sees if they see if they've sort of altered slightly or if they become more cemented they usually became more cemented and ingrained in their beliefs and able to articulate them better a year on and so because addiction came up so frequently we decided to explore this a little bit and we thought okay teens are scared of addiction let's see what their ideas of what constitutes an addiction can be because um although we know that pornography can't be um referred to technically as an addiction we do know there's also something called media effects and media effects is basically a cultural studies term, which means that um, in specifically, I suppose, in the context of pornography is that um, particularly for teens, they regurgitate what they've heard in the media. So they, they mm. hear that porn is damaging. They hear that it's addictive. And we saw that in our research. We would ask teens, and some of them hadn't seen pornography, but they were able to rattle off all the damaging aspects of pornography, you know, um, reduced use of condoms, objectifies women. It's, it can be addictive. And... Um, then I'd ask them, have you seen pornography or what have, what pornography have you seen? And they hadn't seen it yet. So that that actually is an indication directly of media effects. So whether they're receiving that message from schools, parents or from the media, they're able to regurgitate those facts without having any personal experience. So that's mm. interesting in itself. And then I suppose to answer you, Clive, in regards to teens' perspectives of, of wanking, <laughs> or they refer to it as, as, as <laughs> of, of how much is too much, um, we would ask teens, you know, okay, do you think it can be an addiction? And, and sometimes we'd explore with them, you know, you're not actually allowed to call it an addiction, um, which a lot of them would respond with, that's really dumb. Wow. <laughs> of course yeah. it can be an addiction, you know, even teens can yeah. recognise. Be- how much how much, pornog- how much access to pornography, con- what constitutes an addiction? And then you'd have some teens that would say, oh, you know, like once or twice a month. Right. And, you know, that's, uh, to, you know, to me that's not addictive. But, but for the majority they would say, you know, when that's occurring, um, every day or multiple times a day, it's and it's impeding upon your regular regular life, which is synonymous with actual other addictions um, yeah. that occur. So, um, although teens didn't reveal to us how often um, they were engaging, they were able to sort of relay um, what they thought was a healthy porn use versus a problematic porn use 
or in their words, addiction. It's, fu- right. it's funny. When I was telling my good friend Alan about what I was doing this interview on the weekend, he re- reminded me of a funny story with Spike Milligan, who's a famous British comedian. He, in, he wrote in his book that his father caught him masturbating one day and his dad said, it'll, son, it will make you blind. And he said, I looked at my dad and said, well, can I do it a little bit and wear glasses? <laughs> <laughs> I love always that. Always away. Always away. Well, actually, a lot of teens were worried that they would experience, for the boys, they would experience, um, I remember having a conversation with a teen, he's like, you know, that thing where your dick doesn't work anymore. I said, oh, you mean ED, erectile dysfunction? He's like, yeah, that thing. I'm terrified that's not going to work. So I just I just monitor it and I have a little bit. Wow. And then I wow. check because I, I still want it to work. I said, well, there's not actually Gosh. research not a lot of research that actually supports that claim, but I, I can understand why you, why you feel that way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, I mean, we could talk to you for hours. There's still like a million other questions that we could yeah, do. I think we, once we put this episode you know, out, we'll we'll probably have feedback to get you back, I reckon. Do you know what I'd love to do? And I'm just going to say that same thing. If any of our listeners have got some questions about this, send them in to us. Right, that we can put to Giselle, yeah, and we'll sure. get Giselle back on, and we'll we'll go through a list of the questions um, that the, the listeners yeah. send in because because yeah. this is all very new to me and you, Clive. Right? You know, I mean, we've spoke about uh, this since we started doing this podcast. That it would just be fascinating to discuss this because it is quite taboo. Um, you know, also we're parents, we've got concerns, we've got worries, mm. you know, things like that. So um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people out there with yeah. some questions. You've got some questions. That they Giselle, ask. would you be interested in coming back on in, in you know, a month's time or something? Yeah, I'd and love to. Get, get yeah, I'd love to. Because um, there's a people out there that know a lot more about this than I do. But I guess this whole podcast was all about mm. if you're doing something that you no longer enjoy and you can't stop, which, you know, let's be honest, porn's great, right? But yeah. I suppose I, I feel like I haven't answered some of your questions that that you mentioned I think we talked around it and we, and we ended up not discussing them so I can come back to them with your permission if that's sure. okay absolutely um so two points you mentioned that for the first one was that was about COVID and I don't think I addressed right. that sure. so mm. um there was research to show that pornography use did increase um during COVID and the lockdowns and that makes sense yeah. you know people can't go out and meet other people mm. um you know they're at home they're locked they're locked in and um pornography use did increase and then the other thing you mentioned was about Andrew Tate and I don't think I addressed that either um I think I addressed that in terms of sexual violence and those acts you claimed about sextortion um yeah but I suppose from teens perspectives Andrew Tate um although I do believe in freedom of speech um I do believe that children um particularly teens deserve better role models than that I would say Um, yes. So yeah, sorry. Just no, to, no, just to come I, back and, to those yeah. points, I realise I hadn't no. specifically addressed yeah, them. No, and, that's, and I percent agree with I that. I agree with you. I, I am a true believer in freedom of mm. speech, and um, it's interesting because I heard recently on another podcast that talking of addiction, Adele has come out and said she's three months sober and she's so bored. And I'm and like many other people that do podcasts have said, you've got a big position of power here. Surely you can be a better role model in in setting an example of talking about all the good things that have happened since you've not drinking and yeah role models are really important uh, i think and people that and, and well, at yeah. least it's honest i suppose as well that's honest yeah, you know you could, you could turn it around and yeah i suppose you know it's not easy to overcome an addiction or no. problematic behavior no, right. um yeah. Yeah. 
And it's interesting, yeah, with pornography, I mean, my, my research is with teens, but as a hobby, <laughs> a bizarre hobby, I integrate myself into discussion groups online and um, and give advice where possible. And so I'm immersed in a lot of um, adult women's concerns around pornography and they're always mentioning my, my partner has an addiction, they can't engage in regular sex with me or they yeah. don't want to have sex, but then I'm finding that they're engaging with pornography. Mm. And I think this is where it becomes really problematic in adults is not only you know we, we came back to the teens definitions of, of what an addiction constitutes and and the regularity um but even though we can't call it an addiction i suppose what is important to consider whether it's an addiction or not is that problematic use really comes down to when it impedes upon your normal life and when you're not able to carry on a healthy relationship or engage in actual sex behavior actual healthy um yeah sexual activity and that is problematic i think yeah yeah Hundred percent. Yeah, no, I agree. Mm, and we wow. do see that among young men, um, in particular. Yeah. Thank you. It's been really great speaking with yeah. you. Um, wow, Giselle. Thank you. It was so You're good. No awesome problem. to chat with, and I can't wait to chat to you again. So I'll just leave you with this quote by um, Tiffany, who was fourteen, and in response to an addiction, she says, "I mean, there are in response to pornography being addiction, she says, I mean, there are worse things to be addicted to." Yes, it could be concerning and, like, could affect the way that your brain works and the way that you see the world and people, but, like, at least you're not, like, addicted to, like, crack. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I thought that was interesting because she's, she's putting, I guess, as a hierarchy yeah, of addictions is in that perspective. Yep. It's sort of saying, yes, it can be addictive. Yes, it can, can affect how you see the yeah. world, how you can get, you know, affect mm. your isn't brain. That, but isn't that funny? But then there's this hierarchy. That's funny, though, as well, because that's the same with a lot of ad- addicts that are – recovering addicts you go well i'll draw the line that i'm not gonna you know i won't be doing heroin i won't do crack or i won't do if i do this i won't be i can i'll stay here and i'm you know and that certainly happened with um you know your average sunday barbecue and go you know i'm only gonna i'm never gonna smoke drugs i'm just gonna drink my chardonnay and just pour some liquid ethanol down me for the afternoon that'll work fine <laughs> as I say, if, you, if you've got any questions and you're listening to this podcast, please um, send them in to us in either on our social media or through our website. Um, I just want to say as well, before we wrap up, that to all the lovely people that have um, taken the time to do a rating and review for us and some of the beautiful messages we've had on social media, we've had an abundance of them in the last 10 days. Yeah, and it's been it's been amazing. People that I've known for years have reached out to me with personal stuff and shared their own stories of like you didn't know this, but your podcast makes a difference, and it's been beautiful. And I just yeah. want to do a special shout out to, really to a friend of mine, Laurie, who I haven't seen for a long time. She wrote the most beautiful post on social media that actually reduced me to tears um, in in a beautiful way. It was really beautiful. And it's about myself and Amy and the podcast, and I just want to say mm. thank you for that. So. If you are listening to this, the ratings and reviews are very important for us to it really helps us, gives us a little nudge to know that we're in the right direction and um, we want to help as many people as we possibly can. So instead of sending it or taking a, a, a screenshot of the dick pic on Snapchat, take a screenshot of our social media and yeah. share that on your on our <laughs> social media. That would be really Yay. fabulous. I also want to thank Waterloo Studios yeah. because they've been so uh, helpful for us over the last you know, how many, 10 weeks or so we've been doing this. Today, yeah. there's a big audition for a, a, a radio, a TV show going on downstairs and they've been very accommodating for us. They've been always work around us and 
Amy, thank you for taking your lunch break to come and join us today because I know you're working here today. But no Waterloo Studios here in Waterloo. Always a pleasure. And um, thank you. Yeah, thank you everyone for again another. We'll be back next week, next Friday. You've been listening to Straight Edge the podcast. Thank you so much. And um, thank you, Giselle. Thank you, Giselle. It's been Thanks amazing. Thanks so much for having Bye. me.